Father, we pray now that you would give us understanding to your word, that you would enlighten our hearts and minds, that we may walk after Christ. In his name, amen. Please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to John chapter 6 and verse 16. I encourage you every week to bring your Bibles. There's where you will find truth rooted in the text. I'm simply trying to explain what's here. So I pray that you would be helped by opening your Bibles and following along as I read. One of the purposes for a sermon introduction, at least in my, under, my philosophy of preaching, is the introduction is to pull you, the listener, into what the message is going to be about. So how about this? There was once a man who fed thousands of people in the wilderness with only five loaves of bread and two fish and they had tons of leftovers afterwards. So much so that these thousands of people then wanted to make this man king. But the man instead chose to reject that and go to a mountain by himself to pray. Who in their right mind would reject thousands of people wanting him to be king instead to go pray by himself? Wouldn't you want to know more about this man? Well, this is what happens next. John chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. We've been in a series preaching through the Gospel of John. And we know very clearly what John is trying to do. He's told us at the very end of the book that everything he writes in this book is meant to persuade you and I that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that as we believe in him, we have life in his name. Everything he writes, that is his purpose. So fundamentally, when we, when we read here that Jesus walks on the water, a very popular uh, narrative in scripture we are meant to think mere man cannot do that who is he he's the son of God this is the fifth sign of Jesus that John has shared with us and from it we are to further believe that Jesus is in fact the son of God John has been clear in his purpose for these things but the first question I have when I came to this text is not yet about the storm that the disciples are in and it's not yet about Jesus walking on the water. The first question I have is why is this section placed here in the Gospel of John? Especially considering what happened last week with the feeding of the 5,000, what's going to come after this in the weeks to come. Why does John tell us this narrative and why does he tell us this 
now. John couldn't record everything that happened in the life of Jesus. He can't record everything that happens in his uh, hourly day. So he has to naturally pick and choose what he's going to share in his gospel. And of course, he does this under the inspiration of God. God is making sure that John has exactly what he is to share with us in this gospel. God uses these human authors to employ their own personalities in these writings while, while maintaining the complete inspiration of Scripture. But why does John tell us this miracle at this point? Now that question is not always needed when we're reading through the Gospels. And so you may wonder, why am I asking that now? You may be thinking, why does it even matter when he tells us this? Jesus walked on the water. How amazing is that? And that's true. But asking why he tells us this now matters because of how obviously out of place it is unless he put it here for a purpose. The gospel writers were not random when they were recording what happened in the life of Jesus. It's not like you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all sat down separately over their cup of coffee in the morning and said, well, let's see, what do I want to record here? No, instead, each of them had, through the inspiration of God, a purpose and intentionality of what they wrote and where they actually placed it in their writing. As I said a moment ago, the placement of this miracle is so obviously out of place unless John put it here for a purpose. What I mean is, it is it's so obviously distracting to what is going on in the rest of John chapter 6 unless it's not distracting but actually fitting into what the rest of John, John chapter 6 is talking about. The entire chapter 6 of John, which we started last week, is about Jesus feeding 5,000 plus people. And then after this text today, we're going to see that he continues and what he's going to be teaching about is about that feeding of 5,000 plus people. So it's before and it's after. Why does John put the miracle of walking on the water right here, right now? We met 5,000 plus people last week. We're going to see them the next time. During the night, this takes place. Why? Well, there, there are several ways that people have tried to interpret this text and answer the very question that I'm putting before you this morning. One way... One answer has been this. Someone would say, well, this is just simply, and that's a key word, this is just simply a transition of what's happening from day to day. You see, Jesus fed the 5,000 people on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and now he's going to go to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and this narrative is just telling us what happened as he crossed the sea. It's... And this answer, it's simply telling us what happens between the two days. As everyone makes their way to Capernaum, John wants us to know about another miracle, but it's not one that's connected to what just happened the day before, and it's not just going to be connected to what Jesus says next. It simply stands on its own. It's simple recording of Jesus miraculously walking on the water. Now you need to understand that 
I think this text serves as a transition between two days here. I think so. I just don't think it simply serves that. I think there's something else John is doing here. So some people have said this is just a simple transition. They're not connected in any way. Don't connect them. Others have interpreted the timing of this miracle in this way. They connect it, and then this account, to continue on with the Exodus theme that we saw last week. If you remember, if you were here last week in the feeding of 5,000, there were lots of Exodus motifs that we saw. You just like God fed the large thousands of people in the wilderness with manna, and we saw Jesus in the wilderness feed thousands of people with bread, so that what God did, Jesus did, showing his deity. Lots of Exodus themes last week. So it has led some to come to this text and continue making those Exodus themes. Particularly, people have made a connection between when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and now when the disciples and Jesus are crossing the Sea of Galilee. Now, as I've expressed in last week's sermon, I believe, I'm convinced in Scripture that in the feeding of the 5,000, the Exodus theme is obviously clear. I gave you eight reasons last week of why I think that was clear. I'm not convinced that that Exodus theme continues so strongly in this narrative of Jesus walking on the water. To take the Exodus Red Sea crossing and connect it to Jesus walking on the water is a stretch, I believe, that's not supported strongly with a clear exegesis in the passage. Meaning the clear components that we see in this text, I don't think it makes that strong of a connection. The components of last week's text, I think, makes the Exodus connection. I don't think it does so in this text. That's kind of heady, but it's leading to answer my question. So if it's not just a simple transition of what's happening between two days, if it's not simply a continuation of an Exodus theme, what is John doing here? Why does he place it here? And why is he teaching through it? The miracle of Jesus walking on the water is not only recorded in John, but it's also recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. I think if we compare the three Gospels together, then it shows us what John is in particular highlighting specifically, and I think it will help us see the connection between this narrative. You may be wondering, as I even say that this is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John, you may think, well, why does God even give us four Gospels to begin with? I mean, why not just give us one don't they all agree on what happened? Don't they all agree on what Jesus said? Why does he give us four? Well, they do all agree. The four Gospels never contradict each other. But God has chosen to reveal who Jesus was and what Jesus did, what he said, from four different eyewitnesses to bring to their writings their own distinct emphases and themes. They never contradict, but they do emphasize various points of the same truth in distinct ways. So, for example, if, if three people are listening to the same person sing a song, they all hear the same song, they all hear the same words, they all watch the same person sing, but 
each one of the three may describe the singer in a different way. The first person may comment on the singer's vocal range. They may say, wow, did you hear the amount of notes that she was able to hit? The second person may comment on her precision in singing. They may say, oh, it was perfect. It was, it was right on key, pitch perfect. It was excellent. The third person may say, did you hear and see how well the, the singer was able to connect with the listener in the tone that she brought in her singing? Now when one comments on the range, another comments on her precision, another on the tone, are they contradicting each other? Well, obviously not. In fact, when you put them all together and you consider the vocal range and the precision and the, the tone, it only glorifies the singer all the more of how great it was. This is what the gospel writers do. They all listen to the same song of Jesus and under the inspiration of God, they then point out their own distinct emphases to the listener. So that if we compare this miracle of Jesus walking on the water of Matthew, Mark, and John, we can see what each one of them is highlighting for specific particular purposes. And for John in particular, for our study today, we can better understand what he is trying to communicate in his purpose by looking at what he specifically highlights. You can find, as I said, the other accounts in Matthew chapter 14 and Mark chapter 6. I encourage you maybe this afternoon to read those in depth. But for now, I'm just going to summarize them as I go through John's account in more depth. One more thought here. It's important to note that all of the gospel writers here concerning this miracle of walking on the water, all of them record the major details of what happened here. For example, they all reference the windstorm that came. They all reference that Jesus actually walked on the water. None of them actually say, well, what really happened was this. No, they all say Jesus walked on the water. They all record Jesus approaching the disciples on the sea. And they all record Jesus' words of assurance. It is I. Do not be afraid. All the writers unashamedly profess Jesus really walked on top of the water. Now some liberal scholars throughout history have tried to say, well what really happened was Jesus found a sandbar so that it looked like he was walking on the water. A sandbar three or four miles out. Some say, well, what really happened was they were sailing on the coast of the, uh, of the, of the, the sea so that it's near the sand of the, the shore. And so Jesus was really walking on the shore. Now, all of the writers here unashamedly profess Jesus really walked on top of water. So if you just imagine the scene... I don't know about you, but throughout my childhood, when I've heard of Jesus walking on the water, I've envisioned it as kind of like a smooth, lake-like surface. You know, kids, when we get into the pool, like to, as you step on the first step, you like to act like, what if I could just keep going, walking on the water like Jesus? It's nice and smooth. But here we know that it was an intense storm swirling. 
the Sea of Galilee sat some 700 feet below sea level. So you would have these warm winds from on high swoop down in and collide with those cool winds and it would create violent storms at times. There was a time in my life where I wanted to be a meteorologist. That's the best I can give you from research. This storm is brewing on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is walking on it. Not on a smooth surface, but the waves are going up and down like rolling hills. So Jesus is like walking up a wave and then he's walking down the wave. <laughs> and notice, he's completely balanced. He's not running as if he's in a hurry. It's in the midst of a raging sea and storm and Jesus is just strolling on top. All the apostles record this. Or Matthew, Mark, and John, the ones who record it. All of them record this. We are meant to see the one who created the sea now walking on top of it. We're made, meant to say, he is God. Like maybe there's kids in the room, I don't know, who are hearing the story of the first time that Jesus actually walked on water. You are meant to hear the story of Jesus walking on the water and say, we can't do that. My dad can't do that. There's something special about Jesus. He is God. No mere person could do this. And so like the feeding of the 5,000, miracle, we should join the apostles here in unashamedly affirming this miracle to be true as written. It's the main point. All of them attest to it. Jesus walked on water. But as I've said, each writer, through the inspiration of the Spirit, uses the miracles and teachings of Jesus to provide his own emphases. So if we are to pull out what John says compared to the others, we'll begin to notice what John is doing. So I want to show you just a few points of what John highlights in particular as compared to the other writers. First, John seems most emphatic on the darkness of the scene. So look at verse 16 and 17. When evening had came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in a boat, and started across, to the, sea of, across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Now that might seem minor, but Matthew and Mark both record that it was evening, but fitting to John's theme of light and darkness that we've seen throughout this gospel, John indicates that yes, it was evening, and to be sure, not just early evening like sun going down, but it was dark. It was heavy, so that no one is mistaken. It's in the evening, and it was dark. Number two, what John highlights. These things are going to come together in a moment. You'll see how they fit together. Number two, John places an emphasis on the disciples being alone. Verse 17, they got into a boat, started across the sea, to Capernaum, it was dark 
And Jesus had not yet come to them. Implication, Jesus is not with them, so they're totally alone. Now in Matthew and Mark, they agree with this. But it's interesting, if you read their accounts, instead of highlighting that the disciples were alone, instead, when you read their accounts, they highlight that Jesus was alone. So Matthew comments that Jesus went up on a mountain by himself. He was praying. Mark notes that Jesus is standing alone on the shore when he sees them. All of them communicate that Jesus and the disciples are not together, but each go about it a little bit differently. Mark and Matthew highlight Jesus' aloneness. John instead chooses to point out the disciples' aloneness. Why that matters, again, will make more sense in a minute. Number three, John emphasizes the distance between the disciples and Jesus, whereas Matthew and Mark emphasize the amount of time that passes. John emphasizes the distance. John, Matthew and Mark emphasize more the time. Verse 19, when they had rode about three or four miles... Now Matthew mentions more generically that the boat was a long ways from land, he says. Mark simply says that they're out to sea. But John mentions more specifically that they're three or four miles offshore. John gives us this detail just so we are clear. They aren't just a little way off the land. They aren't just out to sea. But they're three or four miles in deep that would have put them about the middle of this section of the Sea of Galilee. John's more specific here in giving a more precise distance. I think to make the reader feel just how alone the disciples are without Jesus. In a storm, in the dark, three and a half miles in the middle of the sea. And over and over in the Gospels, when we see the disciples without Jesus, trouble abounds. Bad things tend to happen. And now, in the dark, the theme of John, in the dark, that they're, they are just far enough where they can't go back. And they're just far enough in where it's still a long way to go. They're in the middle, in the dark, in the storm, in trouble. I was once hiking with some friends in Maine at Mount Katahdin, which is the highest peak in Maine. On Mount Katahdin, you get up to one of the peaks and there's another peak about a mile away. And in between the two peaks is a ridge line that has been known as the Knife's Edge. And it's called the Knife's Edge for what it sounds like because on the ridge line, as you walk between the two peaks, as you walk, who am I joking? Like I crawled in some places. It's like 12 to 18 inches in some of the places that you have to walk with a 5,000 foot drop off on both sides of you. I didn't know what I was getting into. I had friends who lived in Maine all their lives who invited me to go. I said, sure. I've hiked in these mountains in Tennessee before, so what's Mount Katahdin? Well, I was wrong. I'm afraid of heights. So literally, I was like crawling in places. 
on the knife's edge. I got to one of the spots, um, and there was a big boulder that I had to, I had to scoot around, and so you kind of have to s- sidestep it on the, on the path. And I got to the big boulder, and I was holding on as best I could as I scooted my way around, and a big gust of wind came. And there I am, 4,500, 5,000 feet below me, behind me. My death is just waiting. And I'm hugging that rock, and, the, and the, the wind comes, and I just, I press my face against the boulder, and I just freeze. And I think, if I turn around and go back, I'm only halfway there. So the amount I have to go to finish is the amount I have to go to go back. And so I'm literally stuck in the middle, holding on to this boulder with the wind gusting, thinking that my life could end very soon. And I'm not one to exaggerate, I don't think. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you the complete honest truth. Like, I was fearful for my life in that moment. Can't go forward, can't go back. I had no good solution. This is kind of where the disciples find themselves. They're fighting a fierce storm in the middle of the sea. It's completely dark. Going back's not an option. And they're a long way from Jesus. John says, like four miles. You can kind of see how John is specifically setting this up. It's dark, they're alone, and they're far away. Number four, what John focuses on. John focuses on how the disciples received Jesus into the boat. Now, Matthew and Mark, John, they all record Jesus comes on the water. They all record that they're afraid. They all record those things. They record when he comes and he says, It is I, don't be afraid. They all agree, which is interesting, real quick, on that phrase, it is I, don't be afraid. That, that structure of it is I is the same structure that God used when he said, I am. Jesus said, I am, don't be afraid. I, I was thinking on that part this week where Jesus walks to them on the water and they're scared to death. They actually, Matthew and Mark tell us, they actually think Jesus is a ghost. And Jesus comes, he says, I am, it is I, do not be afraid. When God says that in the Old Testament, he comes in his holiness and he says, I am, which brings great fear and trembling. It should. Jesus comes in our fear and says, I am, which brings great calm and comfort. The God of the holiness is also the God who comes near and comforts. That's another sermon in of itself. All the writers record these things. But it changes a little. Not changes. They don't, they don't disagree, but they emphasize differently. When Jesus gets in the boat, John emphasizes a little bit differently. Matthew and Mark make more casual statements. Like you or I would. Jesus, he got in the boat. He walked out. He got in the boat. Only John highlights from the disciples' perspective the willingness, the gladness, the ESV says, to... Receive him into the boat. Verse 21, then they were glad. That word is packed with a willingness. 
I'm glad you're here. We're willing, yes, we're willing to take you into the boat with us. They were glad to take him into the boat. More on that in a moment. Just one more highlight and then we'll, I'll try to piece it together. Number five. John concludes this account with the boat immediately being at the land. After Jesus gets in the boat, they're immediately at the land, he says. Now Matthew and Mark conclude their account with Jesus gets in the boat and the wind stops. But John says in verse 21, they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now just real quick here, did John record another miracle? Are you reading that like I am? When Jesus gets in the boat? Immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going? Like did they somehow miraculously become like teleported to the, to the land? The language could be taken that way. Matthew and Mark record a less elaborate crossing of the sea. Is it a separate miracle? Uh, Jesus could absolutely do that if he wanted. Or was it where it felt like they were immediately on the land now that they have Jesus compared to when they didn't have Jesus and it was really scary? What is clear is Matthew and Mark draw attention when Jesus gets in the boat. Matthew and Mark draw attention to the wind stopping. John leaves that out. Again, not because it didn't happen but because he's emphasizing something else. John seems to highlight specifically in the darkness, the aloneness of the disciples, the distance apart from Jesus, and how the disciples receive Jesus. And then it's just over. It's just over. Those five areas, the darkness, the aloneness, the distance apart, how they receive Jesus, the concluding scene where John places his emphasis in addition to those things, John's event here is the shortest of the Gospels. I mean, if you know this story, you know the famous part. Matthew records about when Jesus comes, Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water to Jesus, but then he starts doubting and he begins to sink. This is, this is that account. Now, that's a cool part of the story. Like, why would John leave that out? Mark tells us at the beginning how the disciples and Jesus were separated to begin with. You might be wondering, well, why did they go across the sea without Jesus to begin with? Mark tells us. That's helpful information. Why would John leave that out? John's recording of this event is the shortest of the Gospels, not because he didn't believe those things, but because he's wanting you to see something else. One of the details Matthew and Mark tell us about is that when I mentioned a minute ago, when, when Jesus comes, the disciples, they're afraid. It doesn't mention they're afraid because of the sea and the storm. Many of them were able fishermen. I, I don't think they're necessarily afraid at that point of the storm. But Matthew and Mark say they're afraid because they think Jesus is a ghost. <laughs> Which probably was kind of comical once Jesus is in the boat and they're on the land like around the fire 
eating breakfast the next morning like man Jesus you really had us there for a second you should have seen Judas's face talk about thinking you were a ghost his face was white as a ghost like John doesn't even tell us any of that he's wanting us to see something else see John doesn't want you in this moment for his purposes to be distracted by the scary storm though it was intense or the fact that Jesus they thought he was a ghost though that was probably comical or the fact that Jesus calmed the wind and he displayed much power in doing that or he doesn't want you to be distracted by Peter walking on the water it's a lesson of faith and doubt yes no remember for John's purposes he wants you to see the power of Jesus believe he's the son of God and here's the key and believe in the right way that is a key to what John is doing in this text John is focused on the disciples seeing the sign of Jesus believing he's the son of God and believing the right way how they receive him see Matthew ends with the focus of the disciples worshiping Jesus Mark ends with the disciples being amazed and perplexed they're still kind of confused about the bread event last week but John ends this narrative in this section ends with the disciples gladly receiving him into the boat willing to receive him I feel like I've hiked around Mount Katahdin to get to my point but here's the point if you put these things together in John's emphasis in the complete utter darkness when the disciples are completely alone a long way away from Jesus without his power his presence or his protection Jesus comes to them and they receive him gladly compared to the other writers it's simple short and to the point it's not busy with a lot of the other details why because he wants you to see it so plainly in the midst of the darkness when they're all alone a long way away from Jesus without his power presence and protection Jesus comes to them and they receive him gladly and here's why I think John put it right here right in the middle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and right before him explaining that feeding John emphasizes that Jesus is divine he says look at him walking on the water but in this moment he highlights a contrast of how the disciples receive him compared to how the crowds receive him that's why I think this account's here sandwiched right in the middle of all the bread talk John is showing a contrast of how we receive Jesus you remember before this miracle Jesus is dealing with a huge crowd who loves that he can provide bread for them just fill our stomachs with more food and you have the crowd and you have the disciples and you see two major contrasting points here number one the crowd seeks after Jesus but Jesus seeks after the disciples and number two they seek Jesus for what they can get out of him 
whereas the disciples just receive him gladly into the boat. You remember when the crowd showed up the first time? Jesus and the disciples, they're all alone on the mountain. And he looks up and he sees a crowd coming to him. Because they know he can heal. They know he can take care of the sick. Next time we're in John, the crowd's going to go around to the, the sea and they're going to come to him again. But Jesus is going to say in verse 26 of John 6, Truly, truly, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It's like asking the waitress, can we have more bread? That's all you want. And that's the second difference. They seek him for what they can get out of him. He gave us lunch yesterday, maybe he'll do it again. But notice in the case of the disciples here, right in the middle, a stark difference. Jesus seeks them out. In the dark, at the sea, in distress, when they aren't looking for him, he looks for them. And when he comes, they're just glad to receive him in the boat. You know, John doesn't record the detail of Jesus stopping the wind. I mean, that's an amazing thing. John believes it, but he doesn't record it in his account. And I think he doesn't record it because he wants just to highlight Jesus walked on the water and the disciples just gladly took him in. Did he bring safety? Yes. Did he bring comfort? Yes. But bottom line, John ends this narrative miracle with they were just willing to have him in the boat. Got any bread Jesus left over? I didn't ask that. I'll close with this. We're going to see the disciples have a long way to go in this. They don't always receive him perfectly. They too sometimes will seek to use Jesus. But here for this moment we see gradual growth. Absolutely come to the boat. My question for each of you this morning is, are you glad to receive Jesus? Just to take him as he is. Willing to receive him, not what you think he can get you. Are you more like the crowd? You know, happy to have him around as he can get you what you want. Happy life, what you want, fire insurance. Ask yourself, are, am I glad to receive just him? John has this theme of not only helping us believe Jesus, but believe the right way. It's a constant theme. We saw it in John chapter 2 where the crowds were wanting to believe in Jesus, but it says Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because they were only doing it for his signs. We saw it a little bit in John chapter 4 where the woman at the well, he's talking to Jesus and Jesus says, hey, I can give you living water. And she says, where is it? Because I sure hate coming to this well every single day. In John 6, the crowd, we're going to see next time, wants bread of life. They say, give us this bread always. Fill our stomachs. But at least for a moment, here with the disciples, they don't seek him, but he seeks them. And in the danger and darkness, they gladly receive him. My final question is this. But why walk on the water? I mean, Jesus could have 
caught up in a boat and they could have gladly received him into their boat. Jesus could have calmed the storm standing on the sand. Why did he choose to come to them walking on the waves? I think one reason Jesus does this is to show them that nothing will prevent him from getting to them in their darkness, in their distress, in their distance. Nothing will prevent him from reaching them, not even the laws of nature. They're four miles out to sea in darkness, distress, and amount of distance, and it's nothing for Jesus to reach them. Last week he showed them nothing prevents him from providing their needs as shown in the bread and nothing will prevent him from meeting them in their distance. No matter how dark and distressful the situation is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a comforting word from Jesus that in your darkness, distress, and distance, no matter how far, Jesus is not prevented by anything from meeting you in your need. Now think of the Freeman family. How dark and distant the last couple of weeks must have felt. Nothing prevents Jesus from coming to them in care. Meeting them exactly where they are. Nothing prevents Jesus from coming to you in your circumstance. If you're not a believer here this morning, and you hear this talk about gladly receiving Jesus, over and over Jesus talks about coming to him, him coming to you. And here's the difference in the Christian and the non-Christian. How do you receive him? Do you receive him or do you reject him? Do you see him coming and say, there's the one who can take my penalty for my sin. There's the one who makes me right with God. There's the one, it doesn't matter if it gives me anything else in this life. I want him and him alone. That's what the Christian says. Are you glad to receive him in your darkness? Or are you just part of the crowd going along just observing cool tricks? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus comes in our darkness and in our distress, no matter the distance. We thank you that he's shown this great coming to us when we were not in a boat on the sea, but we were in the depths of the sea at the bottom, dead in our sins. We thank you that Jesus is able to come to meet us in our darkness, to make us alive in him and to give us new life. And now walking in him, we thank you that he's still able to meet us in our need. And oh, Father, would you give us a spirit that's able to receive him well. Not to use him, but to receive him gladly. We pray that you would give that life and that spirit to people who have not trusted in you in this room. Regenerate their hearts in this moment and cause them to receive him gladly. In his great name, amen.